Welcome to AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. I remember the first time I voted in a presidential election, back in 2004. I was a college student out of my home state, so I got an absentee ballot delivered to my dorm and filled it out, dropped it in the mailbox, and didn't even think twice about how long the mail would take or if there were any concerning problems about how the electoral system itself worked. It was a different world back then. One of the themes that has come up in this pandemic election season has been the fragility of our electoral structures. There are a lot of questions to be answered, like, with more people than ever voting remotely, will all the ballots get counted? What if we don't get actual results until a week or more after election day? Is voter fraud actually a widespread problem? Are Russian hackers going to target our election again? And what should we do about it? Sister Quincy Howard is a Dominican sister who is wrestling with all these questions and more. She leads the Faithful Democracy Coalition, which is a multi-faith community of organizations and congregations who share the moral imperative of fixing our democracy. We talked about her work and her fascinating vocation story, which is unlike any journey to religious life I've ever heard. This is the second episode in our series about faith and civic engagement, inspired by the recent Jesuit conference document, Contemplation and Political Action. You can read the document and see the rest of our faith and politics coverage at Jesuits.org. Thanks for joining us. Sister Quincy Howard, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking time to talk today. How are you doing? I am doing great, Mike. It is really good to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, so uh, here to talk a little bit about a project you're involved with called Faithful Democracy. We'll get into that uh, in just a bit, kind of part of our pre-election coverage here on AMDG. But first, I, I'd just love to hear a little bit more about you and, and your story, uh, how you came to the Dominicans, how you came to this work. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, it is a, a unique vocation story, most of them are. Mine, um, I am what you would call a very late bloomer in religious life. I uh, I really, I spent 25 years as uh, what I called an agnostic. And um, I grew up with a Catholic mother, a self-espoused agnostic father in East Texas. The Catholic church, the parishes in East Texas tend to be of the conservative bent. So it was, I don't think I had even reached adolescence before I decided that I was gonna go with the agnostic route and that I was fine with not knowing and that I couldn't ever know, so it was a non-issue. And um, spent the next 25 years really with that attitude, trying to live a good life. Um, I went to the Peace Corps, I uh, worked in community development, and um, I, I do feel in retrospect that my choices were often uh, guided by my faith, but I was not aware of that. Um, and the other thing is that I always, even as I called myself agnostic, I always acknowledged that I was a non-practicing Catholic. So I always had that awareness of sort of the, um, the, the deep cultural roots from my family of Catholicism, even if I didn't buy into what I had learned as a child in my parish. Um, and then it wasn't until my mid-30s, really, that, um, like I imagine many people that uh, uh, don't have a solid faith, I started searching. I was on a spiritual search, and I was feeling that absence. Um, and that was also around the same time that Francis became Pope. And I started learning about this 
Catholic social justice thing that I was completely unaware of growing up. It was not part of uh, the catechism in East Texas. And, uh, and I started recognizing how much it really uh, captured and manifested the ways that I had tried to live my life. So it, it made me take a, a look at my Catholic roots. And then there was through sort of a comic series of events and surprises around the same time that I was re-engaging with my Catholic roots, I decided to join the convent. So it was a very, very fast and unexpected pivot in my life. It was disruptive. My personal life, my professional life, everything was uprooted. But um, in retrospect, I can only characterize it as the movement of the spirit and really a miracle that I was able to be that open to such a drastic decision at the time. Um, so I entered the Cincinnati Dominican congregation of sisters in Wisconsin. Uh, I had a great aunt that had been a sister there and um, I had a scholarship to college in Chicago from, uh, from what she had left, what she had bequeathed to the congregation. So this was the only women religious that I had any connection with or contact to. I didn't even know that discerning different congregations was a thing at the time. I just jumped in um, headfirst and, um, and really entered into the formation process uh, fully. I, I didn't really have the intention of taking vows but uh, by the time I had gone through the three years of initial formation, I found myself ready to take initial vows and, um, and excited about it, really, which was another huge surprise to me. Um, so that is a testament to the sisters that they, first of all, allowed me to enter, knowing that I wasn't necessarily intending to go all in. And then also for holding the process lightly for me and allowing me to um, enter fully without being fully committed. Um, so by the time I did take my initial vows, that was in uh, 2017, and it wasn't really clear what my ministry would be. It is a congregation of teaching sisters um, historically, and my professional background was in urban planning. I had lived in New Orleans for years doing disaster recovery. Um, so it, it wasn't real clear what that translated into as a um, initially vowed sister. Uh, around that time, Network Lobby for Catholic Social Justice, which I was aware of, uh, had a job opening and uh, Trump was president at that point. So the political scene um, felt very urgent on a federal level. And also um, with my background in policy, I thought, well, that could be a fit. I don't know what that looks like to do advocacy and lobbying in Washington DC under the Trump administration, but I'll give it a try. And um, so within a matter of weeks after taking my vows, I moved to Washington DC to learn how to lobby on the Hill as a sister, which was um, talk about jumping into the deep end. Lots of learning curves going on there. Um, and uh, and again, I entered fully into it. And it, uh, I, I would say that as my first full-time ministry, 
um, it, it has been a wild ride. And one of, one of my learnings has been uh, getting an inside view of the, the federal government on Capitol Hill and the dysfunction there. Whether it is under the Trump administration, I'm sure that it was there before the Trump administration, but um, it, is, it is very present. So that is how I ended up where I am at this point. Wow. That is uh, an awesome story. Thanks so much for sharing some of that. Do you remember like what your friends or family like said to have such like a big sudden like I'm, you know, in and then like going into this like particular life? Were they surprised or like, oh, this actually kind of we've been wondering about this. Like what what were people's reactions? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I didn't tell anybody about it for the first few uh, months that I was genuinely exploring it. And I found myself like taking steps towards the application and nobody knew about it. And I remember feeling like imagining this must be what it feels like for people that are living in the closet, right? Like they're doing stuff and they're aware of themselves in a way that they aren't sharing with anyone and is secret. And I remember around Christmas time, I decided to just send out the word to everyone um by email just to sort of pull off the band-aid and um talk to some of my closer friends and family before i did that obviously um and it was really a fascinating journey in and of itself because the initial response was that i was kidding they thought that i was kidding and it was some kind of weird joke and then once people it would sink in that no i'm i'm serious and this is something i'm considering doing I was really surprised at how many people said that it seemed weirdly right. It seemed like a, a, a right fit. Once I explained to them sort of why I was looking at these sisters and what I thought religious life might have to offer and um, why I felt ready to explore it, um, people were really quite supportive. Um, a couple of friends thought that I was joining a cult and they were very worried, but um, they have since come around and really love the sisters as much as I do. Um, so we've we've all been kind of on this journey together. Can you tell me a little bit about the the community uh, from Wisconsin, the Dominican community you're part of? What yeah, like? sure, sure. Um, so we have about a little under 400 sisters at this point in the congregation. Um, the demographics mirror what you see in most women religious congregations. Um, I think our median age is 82, if I'm not mistaken. So um, the, I don't know that I would call it the downside, but the, the challenging part of joining a congregation at this time is that we have on average 25 sisters a year that pass away. So that is a um, consistent and um, really difficult aspect of the community. However, um, I would say that I have learned through these sisters how to grieve in a way that is um, true and healthy and even celebratory in community. Um, so I, I've discovered aspects about grieving through uh, through them that have been really enlightening for me, and I think have have really prepared me well for um, the kinds of tragedy that we're seeing nationally right now, and the sort of um, mass deaths, really, right, of the most vulnerable and the oldest in our society. 
no, for, for sure. Uh, so I'd love to turn now to, to your work connected with network through which you lead uh, an initiative called Faithful Democracy, which mm-hmm. I think a, a good issue for us to be talking about now, obviously. So could you just maybe tell me a bit about what Faithful Democracy is and, and how it got its start? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, when I've, I've been in DC now a few years, and one of the issues in my portfolio were, were uh, we work on federal policy, and one was voting rights. Um, looking at sort of restoring the the Voting Rights Act after the Shelby ruling in 2013, and through that work, I kind of stumbled upon this broader coalition of secular organizations focused on good governance, organizations like Common Cause, Public Citizen, League of Women Voters, that were all um, in advance of the 2018 midterm. They were all really working on crafting a bold and comprehensive democracy reform omnibus bill for the new session. Um, And the more I worked with them, the more I realized that voting rights, looking at voting rights alone is not sufficient. You really have to treat the whole system, um, including money and politics, including gerrymandering, including accountability and ethics measures. So um, I, I worked with this coalition and as through the election and then as the next um, the next congressional session began, Nancy Pelosi made the bill that they helped craft the number one priority of the new Congress, and it's the For the For the People Act. Um, so I continued working with them on that bill, and one of one of my colleagues with the Franciscan Action Network. We were really the only two representatives from the faith community in this coalition. So there was a real clear absence of faith voice in this uh, effort to push forward bold democracy reform. So through that recognition, really, we started trying to build up what had formerly been just like a a working group, an advocacy working group of faith partners, and and trying to turn it into a real coalition, um, nationwide, state-level partners in the faith community, uh, diverse partners, that we're all interested in the same thing, which is building a functional, healthy democracy through reform. Um, so that is that was the nexus of the idea, and we have continued sort of um, building that coalition and educating our partners on the importance of having these reforms. Um, we it's not a it's not an organization. It is not it is non corporate. We all are sent basically united around what we call the voters covenant which is almost a principles document, but it's really a moral statement of the need for reforms, looking at all of the different immoral ways that our democracy is distorted currently. And we list our endorsers. um, And the idea is that as we move into 2021, we will be able to bring to bear this broad coalition of diverse faith groups um, to really push Congress to pass the full package, a full package that makes a huge difference and lays a solid foundation for the rebuilding that our nation is going to have to do. I think about the issues that faith communities come together around, you know, I think natural ones 
like Fighting World Hunger. I think of Bread for the World in Washington, this kind of great big Christian ecumenical group that that lobbies for for hunger relief or groups working together on immigration or recently on racism questions. Why do you think for people of faith uh, that working on kind of democracy reform, which feels like a little, I don't know, maybe it's harder to, to see in some ways, or it's just not quite like as common of a thing to hear about faith groups working on. Um, why do you think is it important for, for faith groups? Yeah, well, those are those are the two dots that we're really working hard to connect, right? And one of the things that made me sort of recognize the potential here was that this secular coalition started out with the types of organizations I told you about, but they began building and diversifying, including groups like the Sierra Club or um, the Brady Campaign that are really sort of what, what we might call single issue advocacy groups that were connecting the dots, that they're never going to um, prevent gun violence unless they have a functional democracy that they can advocate within. They are never going to um, address climate change unless there is a functional democracy where people's voices can actually be heard and their advocacy can be effective in the way that it is designed to be, right? So that really um, helped the wheels turn for us in recognizing how many of the issues, poverty, hunger, care of creation, uh, peace and justice, all of the issues that the faith community um, is within our mission to try to make change and to connect those dots for, um, for congregations, faith organizations and advocates to see how none of that is gonna move forward in a real way until we're able to fix the foundation. I think about some of the images you see around maybe again, what you would call dysfunctional democracy uh, in this country, very long voting lines in certain places with people having to wait hours. Those things you know, have been on the news and been you know, some hearing about that recently. Obviously the, the emphasis, uh, the big stories around the postal service and whether or not people who were hoping to vote via mail this year would be able to get their ballots and get them in on time because of slowdowns of the postal service. So some of these issues definitely have kind of crept up to the, the top of uh, the headlines, what are some of the issues you really are focusing on? You've ticked off a few, especially kind of going into this election season. Are there a, really like a handful that you really kind of want to highlight uh, for people who you're working with? Yeah, um, so I I would say that as as far as this election goes, um, there we are at a, a fever pitch right now of people being concerned and seeing really all of the systems that already had weaknesses, whether we're talking about democracy or whether we're talking about healthcare or whether we're talking about um, labor, all of them, we are seeing the weaknesses get exposed. And that's no, no exception with our elec election systems. Um, what had previously we thought of, or what, what I was previously concerned about in my advocacy for this election was things looking at things like election security getting funding um, for protection from hacking in electronic voting machines, or um, worrying about uh, foreign meddling and misinformation, which was an issue in 2018 and 2016. And then also the sort of targeted voter suppression that we've really seen grow since 2013 with the Shelby ruling. But once um, COVID hit, it really changed the playing field. Didn't change it so much as it, it amplified it and it made it much more complicated. So the, the things that the voter suppression, which had been targeted before is really now 
the concern is mass orchestrated voter suppression because everyone is exposed to COVID in the same way. Um, and how states and local jurisdictions accommodate that makes a huge difference. And it's also a matter of public health and potentially life and death. So the stakes are higher in that way as well. Um, and I think uh, the misinformation, clearly that concern has not gone away, but now where it's been bumped up a notch or a hundred notches because we have the president himself encouraging voter fraud um, publicly. And um, we, we have issues with the uh, intelligence community trying to warn us about foreign interference that is potentially getting stifled um, and kept from the public. So the terrain has gotten much more complicated and more high stakes. Um, and the, the other sort of thing that we are looking at with this election is the election day itself and how logistically is that going to go down and how is what is the outcome going to look like and how is it going to be received so um it, it's shifted dramatically what our concerns are and what we're focusing on um since covid yeah so i've seen different scenarios laid out where you might again the night of the election not necessarily know where things were going because of the number of mail-in ballots that take a long time to count as long as they are received uh you know on time hopefully uh that we might not know that then cable news channels and others will be ex you know hoping to declare winners but we might not know right away and that uncertainty uh could really you know discredit the validity of the election so what, what is your thinking around that what are the message you're trying to communicate around some of the the potential you know pitfalls on the election night when you know, you're speaking with different groups. Yeah. So, um, and, and just to reiterate, like as, as we are focused right now on the election and we are really using the energy around the election, um, to build our coalition, our long-term go goals, God willing, are going to be in the next congressional session, um, to take it a step beyond, but we all know that November is keep your eye on the prize. Um, and so I would say that for the faith community, our messaging is around instilling confidence because we do have, um, we have the legal systems in place, the laws in place to address the kinds of scenarios, the worst case scenarios that you've, you've sort of seen laid out by different groups. Um, it's really the, the danger and the uncertainty is mostly in our heads and in the confidence of the American people. So the threat isn't having formal guardrails. We have those, but the faith community is key as trusted messengers to instill confidence in the population so that we can stay calm, so that we can um, have realistic expectations for how the results are going to roll in over time because of the nature of this very unique election. Um, and just to try to, uh, to, to keep people calm and to give that level of confidence that's needed to um, get us to January. Since you arrived in Washington and started working on uh, voting rights issues in particular, what are some things you've learned that have really surprised you or, or shocked you? Things that you might not have known just kind of following at a kind of basic level on the news. Uh, it's kind of big things that you, again, make you kind of say, wow, I'm surprised this this is going on. Yeah, the 
one thing that was really eye-opening to me was learning about the narrative around um, voter fraud and election fraud um, and how little of that is rooted in evidence and how um, there really has been a concerted effort since like, I don't know, around 20, 2009, 2010, a concerted effort to make that a narrative and how it has taken root to the point that there are many Americans more concerned about that than the very real and prevalent issue of um, unprotected voting rights and voter suppression that is done in so many different nefarious ways and there's so much evidence for it. Um, and then with the Voting Rights Act having been gutted, there's no protections against it in any kind of real meaningful way and it's continuing to get worse. So it's sort of um, the way that there is the, the distraction and then there's the reality of what the challenges to voters are in the 21st century. Um, I think another really eye-opening, I, I knew it intellectually, I knew that money ran politics, right? But having seen on Capitol Hill with the lobbying work that I'm doing and having one-on-one -on -one conversations with staffers and talking about the policy and the sort of uh, how a certain policy makes sense from their constituents' point of view, from an economic point of view, from a moral point of view, we cover all the bases and yet their bosses will vote against all of those interests and it's very clear what the rationale is. Um, so I think getting a firsthand look at how the special interests drive decision-making has been um, eye-opening to me as well, even though I knew it intellectually. Can we talk a little bit about both of those areas, voter suppression and money in politics? I'm interested in, in both of those. Um, so you, men you mentioned a couple of times uh, the Voting Rights Act being gutted, uh, connected to a Supreme Court decision from a few years ago. For folks who might not be as familiar with that, could you just summarize uh, what you're talking about there and then maybe some examples of how we see uh, some of that suppression playing out in different places in the country? Yeah, sure. Um, so the 1965 Voting Rights Act, um, really had a formula built into it for enforcement and that targeted uh, many of the states and some jurisdictions that had a history, a clear history and pattern of suppressing the votes at that time of people of color. Um, so 50 years later, more or less, um, there was a court case, Shelby versus what was the Shelby court case. It ended up going to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled that that formula was no longer valid because 50 years had passed. And, you know, you can, these states have really, they've gotten past that whole racism thing. So you need to come up with an updated formula. And until then, we're just gonna strike that formula. And all of the enforcement measures and enforcement would look like things like, um, let's say Texas, um, wants to change some of the administrative rules around voter registration, right? Instead of just being able to decide to do that, they would have to get it pre-approved by the Department of Justice and the Department and the Department of Justice would come back to them and either point out flaws and why that rule might impact communities of color in more than it should, 
um, or they may approve it, right? But there was a very streamlined process to get approval for those kinds of rule changes and also ensure that they were not going to suppress the vote in key communities. Um, once you strike that formula, which was done in 2013, then those protections disappear. And one of my favorite quotes was from uh, Justice Ginsburg when she said that um, taking away the, the ruling in Shelby was basically like uh, taking away your umbrella when it's raining because you're not getting wet, right? So um, those protections were key to the reason that voting rights were protected and getting rid of them as we have seen um, has been a very slippery slope and a quick one because Texas immediately um, passed state laws around um, making voter registration and ID laws, I believe, like within five days after that ruling, they started putting these laws in place because they knew they weren't going to need pre-approval from the Department of Justice. And Texas has laws like um, you can use a NRA card to be able to vote at the polls, but you can't use a student ID. So very clear decisions are made that um, have political rationale behind them. And you can only, groups can only, um, push back after they have been passed. So there's not that, that preemptive nature of it. So often the damage is done and the voters have not been able to vote before you are able to overturn the rules. So that obviously a, a long-term thing to try to essentially replace the Voting Rights Act. Is that part of the, the longer term vision? As you mentioned, that kind of big omnibus bill, that would be part of it? Yeah, Can that's right. That's right. So um, there is a separate bill that is now um, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, uh, wow. named after the, the late congressman, um, that would has specifically looked at all of the ways since 2013 that a variety of states have changed their laws, sort of what are the, the best practices for voter suppression, and gives evidence from different states about how this has impacted voting rights um, in key communities and has rebuilt a quote unquote updated formula and wants to it needs to be passed in congress to be able to restore the voting rights act this is like the fourth time that they have gone through this exercise since 2013 and there is more and more partisanship in congress so um, it's gotten less and less likelihood over time sadly there was there was sort of a bipartisan push for it immediately after the ruling and it failed and it has failed ever since. Um, the, this omnibus bill, the voting the for the people act, it includes a pro provision that supports, um, re, re uh, restoring the voting rights act. So it doesn't go into the actual formula itself, but it has, um, congressional support for that initiative. Um, and it also includes, instead of a formula, it includes a lot of across the board federal floor standards for what voters should be able to expect. One of them would be a holiday on election day. Just make that a federal holiday. Um, things like um, automatic registration when you become 18. Uh, things that make it easier to vote in every state and it would be across the board. So in, in some ways, the, uh, it is a complement and a supplement to uh, Voting Rights Advancement Act. It's just crazy to me that this has become such a partisan issue, as you've said, because it seems to me that anyone who cares about the country 
would want people to participate, to have their voices heard, kind of a foundational thing to who we are, uh, who we claim to be, that you get a chance to raise your voice in this important way. Uh, but it does seem like it has become a partisan issue whether or not certain groups of people should be able to vote or what the obstacles are in the way. That's not really yeah. a question. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> no, it's just, it's again, yeah. it's, it's crazy to me how that so much, everything that, that we seem to talk about in politics today does seem to like, seems that it's partisan, even stuff. I'm just like, why, why is this stuff partisan? Hopefully yeah. John Lewis's memory and his inspiration to get something done, but I don't know. It's tough. I, I, um, my hope, my hope really is that with COVID and with this election, um, people are, I'm always hopeful that people are going to wake up to the need for, um, some federal standards for voter protection and what voters can reasonably expect is the ease of which they can vote, right? Um, there, it is so apparent the disparities between states right now. Of course, there needs to be state flexibility and there are differences in states, but that does not preclude having some kind of floor for what are the standards on how difficult it should be to vote for any individual person. And the federal government, um, a lot of a lot of uh, Republicans will talk about a federal takeover of elections. And the federal government, through the Voting Rights Act, it has been found over and over again that the federal government does have the obligation and the right to protect voting rights. And so that is that is a mechanism to do it is to set some standards for all the states and then let them work from there and be flexible in ways that uh, they can tweak their own systems and administration based on their populations. I want to turn to uh, the money in politics, the other uh, issue you mentioned. So you are you go on to the Hill, you're involved in advocacy. Uh, you took a vow of poverty. Is that right? Part That's, of right. Your That's right. Yeah. So you're not you're not going in signing big checks. Uh, you're encouraging other Catholics and other folks of goodwill to be involved in uh, advocacy. We do that at the Jesuit conference. Uh, we encourage folks to to get involved. Um, when you are like making that message, sharing that message with people, saying, "Hey, like put your faith into action this way by standing up for justice," but also knowing that so often it seems like money is more important to folks in elected office. How do, you, how do you keep hope up? How do you keep going through that, knowing that these people who you're saying, hey, you should get involved, you, fe fearing that like their voice might not be heard as much as it should be? I mean, there, there is a very real danger right now with cynicism um, among advocates among voters, among everyone really that doesn't have a lot of money and isn't running the show. Um, and even with with advocates that are trying to, to pass laws that get money out of politics, many of them have had to join the game in order to have their voices heard to try to, I mean, the irony is thick, right? It's, it's very ironic and that is the way the game is played. Um, that is why I believe that um, the For the People Act or some similar like comprehensive uh, omnibus legislation that gets at the different aspects of how money is injected into the political system, whether that's through lobbying, whether that is um, through uh, campaign and advertising and all of the ways, whether it's through supporting initiatives that a lawmaker 
um, is in favor of. There are so many different ways that it infects the system that you have to take a comprehensive approach to it. And, um, and I think that there is a very, there is a high level of popularity among the American people, whether you are on the right side of the aisle or the left side of the aisle, there's a recognition that there's a problem. There's a recognition that these systems are no longer working um, for the interest, the common interest. The special interests are very clearly in control. And so I feel like 2021, depending on how the election unfolds, is going to be a rare moment that we can really come at the issue in a comprehensive and meaningful way to change the foundation of, of, our, of our democracy. And we're gonna need to do that in order to rebuild after COVID and after this disaster of four years it's, it's going to take a solid foundation in order to um, move forward in a meaningful way that is better for everyone. So in this, as you said, your kind of first full-time ministry since taking vows, how has your like vocation and this work kind of informed each other? Have you felt like stronger in your vocation, feeling like you're, you are doing what you're called to be doing? I just am curious about for you, th this work kind of really in the weeds on some really big things and your kind of relatively new religious vocation. How, would, how do you find those kind of going together? Yeah, I, um, well, it was, it's been really challenging to um, be in something of a public facing, um, politicized, environment and and organization really in network um, as at the same time that I'm trying to sort through my own identity as a sister <laughs> right and so so sifting out where my real motives are and where my real intentions are and uh, what is mission driven and what is ego driven like I'm, I'm so aware and have been since I got here of those tensions. And um, which I think has actually been really good for me. Um, and it, it's taken a lot of intentionality to be true to my path as a sister and not to sort of get um, tied up and distracted in the frenzy of activity on Capitol Hill and the sort of high stakes, high drama, um, distractions that come along with the job. And I think it has, it has also helped me because there's so much noise, so much noise. It has, uh, and I often have to, have to expose myself to it for my job. I have, have really formed a practice of trying to get to the heart of issues. Um, and that includes issues that I don't agree with on the left and issues that I don't agree with on the right. So um, trying to walk that line and be true to myself has, I think, really been helpful for me in my vocation and to continuously keep trying to dig to what is at the heart of things and what is in my heart and the heart of my mission as a woman religious. I did want to ask a little bit about a related but slightly different um, moment in your story and your time in Washington, D.C. Uh, a few weeks ago, I guess a couple months ago now, uh, a photo of you uh, went, I guess, mini viral, viral. I don't know what you, what you would call that uh, on the Internet. Uh, this was, I think, right after 
So it's in the middle of the protest right after George Floyd was murdered. Uh, President Trump had gone to the, the church uh, near the White House like a couple nights or the night before. And then he was going to a Saint, the John Paul II shrine, right, I think, near kind of in Brooklyn in the northeast D.C., where a lot of the Catholic stuff is. And then there was kind of a demonstration to of a lot of Catholics, like specifically Catholic demonstration, kind of expressing displeasure with that and kind of standing up uh, for the movement for, for black lives. Uh, and there was a photo of you uh, in habit and in a mask holding a sign that said, I think it said, this is evil, hashtag BLM. Is that right? Um, That's right. And then, yeah. And then that went a lot, a lot of places. What? So could you just talk about that experience? What was your, your hope around that? Obviously, I, I, as you're saying, a very public facing thing, uh, a, a real witness though. Um, so yeah, just tell us a little, a little bit about that story if you would. Yeah, that there's so much um, wrapped up in that story um, from the habit as a symbol in for women religious in my own congregation and in the nation um, and sort of what does that symbolize. Um, and then also my, my own feeling of helplessness at that point. Um, I live in a community of 15 with some some folks that are would be in a high risk category. So I was not leaving the house for anything, right? Um, and then when I saw at six in the morning, I woke up and saw the plan for the president to go to the shrine, which is nearby where I live. Um, I, I just knew that I had to do something I couldn't see all of these people exposing themselves in the streets day after day, hour after hour, and sort of let that stand without some kind of pushback. So, um, so I went, and I, I, you know, I, I kind of thought that he might um, have a photo op, and I don't know, put some sisters up with him or something. I didn't know what he was going to do. Nobody did, and so um, I. There was part of me that thought maybe I'll I'll infiltrate the, the people in a photo op. I, I didn't know what to expect, um, but I, I wanted to present a clear public witness of a Catholic person of faith that was pushing back on that kind of photo op. Um, and especially after what we had seen at St. John's with the Episcopal Church, um, that was just so anathema to anything faith-based or true um, true to God, that uh, I, I felt a responsibility as a Catholic to also push back. And I, I knew that wearing my habit um, for that would garner attention and make it very clear who it was that was pushing back in that case. So I just uh, woke up early, I, I told my community and they were all very supportive um, and then I, quarantined after that, right? Just to make sure. Um, and I, I, I showed up with my last minute sign that I came up with, with just a few words, because I didn't have a lot of poster board to write on. And, um, and it, it did garner the attention that I thought it might. Uh, it was, it's been a little bit, it's a little bit embarrassing to me that um, the way that it went viral, considering that was like, one of my few out on the streets moments. And I know that there are people that are dedicated to peaceful protest and that is where they're at every day. But I try to remind myself that we're all on the same side, so. Sure. So uh, for folks who are interested in 
working with you, connecting with you and uh, the group uh, Faithful Democracy and uh, trying to work to, to make our country better. How, how, can they, how can they get involved? Yeah, most definitely. So we, um, we have our website that we just launched, which is faithfuldemocracy.us. Um, you can learn more about who our current, current endorsers are and what our mission is. And uh, we really plan to, God willing, ramp up um, in the lame duck and in 2021 to try to make some deep changes. If you are part of a faith community, if you are part of a congregation, if you work for a faith-based organization or institution, please ask them if they would endorse our voters covenant and be listed publicly as a supporter for democracy reforms. This is, it is nonpartisan. Uh, all of our messaging is C3. We are, we are about fundamental democracy reforms that make our government work better. And hopefully everyone can be on board with that. Well, Sister Quincy Howard, thank you so much for sharing uh, your story with us and uh, the important work that you're doing and uh, prayers for you uh, in these next few months and beyond. And again, yeah, thanks so much. Thanks. Could I say one more thing? Oh, hey, sure. You're the guest. Uh, anyone who is voting, please vote early. And please, if you want to vote by mail, order your ballots now. Get it in the mail as quickly as possible. Any way that we can um, minimize the crowds of people on election day is going to be hugely helpful for the electoral outcomes. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Dara Sump, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>